Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Welcome to the Opera Box Score podcast for Monday, June 6th. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us. Well, our streak of 27 consecutive shows ended when we took Memorial Day off last week, but we are still America's talk radio show about opera, period. No one talks with you about opera week in, week out like we do. What's more, on our show, you get to have your say. Leave us a message on 224-218-9BOX. Again, 224-218-9269 or email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com. On the show, we go inside the huddle with baritone Mathen Black. In addition to being a great singer, he's also got his own arts podcast called Doing the Work, and he's our guest co-host for this episode, so you're going to get his hot takes on all of our content. In our Chalk Talk segment, we give you our two cents on the big news this week that Yannick Nézé-Séguin is to take over from James Levine as the new music director at the Metropolitan Opera. And we tell you about the best and worst conductors we've worked with and what puts them in column A or column B. P.S. Good old Yannick won't be at the Met until the 2020 season. Plus, Oliver Camacho puts Mathen and Tobias to the test in our pop quiz, asking them to identify conductors just by listening to an audio recording of their work. Let's roll. Kickoff is next on Opera Box Score right after this. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Giovanna Jacques. All right, we got a fantastic show for you this week. I know we missed last week, so apologies for that. Uh, Giovanna Jacques, out of town. Oliver Macho Camacho, in town, but not in studio. I'll tell you who is in studio. Tobias Wright. Hello. Sorry for giving you some P-Vision experience and not showing up last week to record our show. <laughs> You'll have to look up what P-Vision is. The man who doesn't have that, Math and Ring Black. Thank you so much for co-hosting. Uh, it's an absolute blast to be here. Thank you guys so much. <laughs> it's good to see you, buddy. Um, let's introduce you to the audience just a little bit. Um, you are a baritone. I am. And what was the start for that? How did you kick it off. Oh, well, I had a failed dream of wanting to be John Mayer. He did it before I did. I was always a guitar player and a songwriter all through high school and college, and uh, my, my voice never really fit pop and rock kind of music. Everything always seemed a little bit out of reach. And then all of a sudden, I went on a choir scholarship to college, started taking voice lessons, and about halfway through, I was actually, I remember the exact moment, singing in the quintet in Mozart's The Magic Flute, and my voice just kind of went, <laughs> And opened, and my teacher went, oh, this might be something we need to check out for you. Turns out I was biologically prepared to be an opera singer. <laughs> and I haven't looked back. Do you still listen to John Mayer? Oh, dude, all the time. For all you haters out there who don't like John Mayer, <laughs> say what you will, but he is a god on the guitar. I always tell people that one of the best performances I've ever been to is a John Mayer concert. Yeah. The dude was like, hey, I know I'm kind of a D-bag, so I'm just going to jam for three hours. You guys hang out. And then he played for three hours. And shredded awesome. like a maniac. <laughs> you also have a podcast, I Math, do. and tell us about that. It's called Doing the Work with Math and Black, and it's a podcast... 
that focuses on more of the, the common man in classical music. You can find a lot of interviews with opera singers, with conductors, with composers, where everything sounds very lofty and sort of creates a separation between the common man and the makers of the art. All of the people that I know that make great art are just like me, scared, working three jobs, trying to figure everything out despite all of the things trying to keep them down. And I wanted to share those kinds of stories to help create a community where people understand that art is not something for the rich, not something for the elite, but it's something that we can use to change the world for the better. How has the podcast changed since it started? in its infancy to where it is now. Well, I'm not as terrified every time that I do a recording. Um, no, it's really kind of fun. When I started doing the podcast, really what I wanted to do was learn how all of my friends that I respect practice and become better musicians and fight that good fight all over time. After about three or four months, I started realizing that everyone's question, the answers to those questions are the same. You shut up, you do the work, you show up and you never quit. So it stopped being so much about trying to figure out the formula for making art and started being more about celebrating the lives of these people who do this awesome thing. Has it changed your perspective doing this? Has it changed your outlook? Oh, absolutely. I don't feel so alone anymore, man. Yeah. You know, it's so very easy to feel alone in a practice room or to feel alone in a Starbucks studying a Strauss score. When you realize that everyone who's trying to make art at a high level goes through the same things, mm -hmm. I really pull strength for every interview I do. So it gives you a little bit of that light at the end of the tunnel. Absolutely, when you're grinding. man. That's awesome. Well, and not just light at the end of the tunnel. I don't need to be at the end of the tunnel to be able to be happy. Light and happiness now. That's awesome. Well, you guys are going to get to know a lot more about math and during the course of the show, he's guest hosting and co-hosting for us today. Right now, we're going to get it going with our Chalk Talk segment. Opera Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and Giovanna Jacques. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Well, if you don't know the name, Yannick Neze Seguin, and you don't know how to spell it, and there's a couple of diacritics in there, and there's a Y and a Z. Uh, you those, will those know about him. Y and Z's. Oh, Y and Z. <laughs> you always make a mess of everything. Uh, he is the new music director at the Metropolitan Opera. Uh, this was announced in the last week or so. And um, we want to examine a little bit what this hire means for the Met, what it means for opera at large, and specifically what it means for conductors that we've worked with, how that uh, makes us think about the o other collaborations that we've had as well. So uh, he's 41 years old. Hmm. He is from Quebec, Canada. Uh, he is a busy little bee, still at the Philadelphia Orchestra as the head conductor. What else does this guy do? Well, he's done a little bit of everything. Um, I think it's. I, I think there's been. Um amongst some american critics it's interesting you know oh we have a canadian and he's been all over the world right now he's in philadelphia and i think the important thing to recognize is what an international uh place the met is and i think so there, there's a cool thing there he's young it's gonna be a, a shot of adrenaline i think um well that's the hope i think uh, amongst people at the met to bring in somebody a little bit younger um and for the most part, I think it's been a there's been a lot of positive support for this hire. I don't know. What do you guys? Mathen. Yeah. So um, Yannick has been a presence at the Met for a while now. Mm -hmm. He's been performing as a conductor 
with at least one show a year ever since 2009. So this isn't something that's out of the blue for this appointment. And I actually got to see him conduct um, through the Met HD broadcasts of Rosalka a few years ago. And I love watching those HD broadcasts because you get to see a little bit of the behind the scenes with the actors, with the singers, and with the conductor as well. And that man is a shot of magic when you get to see him talk. He's young, he's energetic, he is handsome, and he was wearing a tuxedo with a white collared shirt with no tie, which I mean is just kind of cool. He, he just sort of oozes charisma, cool youth. He does and have he, a lot of sex appeal. He has absolutely. a tattoo, right? Oh, I haven't seen turtle. that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a turtle? That's kind of lame. But... <laughs> <laughs> At least it's not a, a turtle holding a baton. It could be. But I haven't inspected I, it. I have a, a, a different take on this. And if I'm looking at the <laughs> list of other big conductors in the world, I really genuinely wonder if there was really anyone else in the conversation at all. For example, you think about Gustavo Dudamel. We know that he is a guy who has refused to work at the Met until he can control the video rights for all the pieces that he works on. So that is a point of contention. Think about someone like Antonio Papano, who is the uh, music director at Covent Garden, the Royal Opera House in London. He has worked at the Met before, but his shows have not been terribly well received. Look at some of the other big leading European Opera House music directors. Ricardo Chailly, Christian Tilleman, Kirill Petrenko, who is at the Bayerische Staatsoper, Philippe Jordan. These guys weren't even in the conversation. So I'm wondering, like, was there really any competition for this at all? Judging by how quickly it happened, I think it had been in the works for quite some time. And I think he'd been, like you said, you know, he's been there for several seasons. The audition process for him has been an exhaustive one. And they wouldn't have made this decision had they not already given him ample opportunity to prove himself. So were there other people considered? I'm sure there were, and that could have been years ago. And I think it, it sounds to me by the process like he really separated himself far before they even made the decision um, that James Levine was going to be stepping down. We've known for a long time that this was coming with James Levine stepping mm. away from the helm of the Met, which, I mean, we should take a moment while we're talking about this and just understand the magnanimity of what it, what it is that had to have James Levine leaving. That was Levine a big word. Leaving. Oh, Thank you know, you I'm that. full of them today. You know, in, in the entire history of the Metropolitan Opera, there have only been three men mm -hmm. to hold the, the role of music director. Um, so it, it's a huge deal. But with James Levine's failing health, with the, the that being a big deal over the last few years, at least, they would be foolish not to think of other people. But if we're looking at where opera is going in the future... What is trending in terms of opera success with a younger population now? I don't think anyone else was ever a true option. I just don't think any other European conductor would come to the Met. Because the fact of the matter is, is that ticket sales are down. People are unhappy with the type of repertoire that's being programmed. Why, if you were at a big European opera house, why would you switch to the Met? As Americans, we think it's a big deal. But if you're coming from a European perspective, it really only barely stacks up to some of these other opera houses. I think that those other European conductors, you couldn't pay them enough money to take that job. It just wasn't attractive enough to them. 
Is this the part of the show where George talks about how often he goes to Germany? <laughs> we're, gonna, we're coming. It's coming. To that. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll get to that. I think you're absolutely right. Um, there is a very different tradition in Europe of how the houses function, the economy of the houses. Plus, I, I would be wrong if I were so arrogant to believe that I understood everything that's happening in terms of the, the hierarchy and the, the economy of the Met. At the Met, yeah. Uh, and also, getting a 41 year old conductor like that versus. Versus someone like, say, um, <clears throat> well, anybody, anybody in Europe. It's probably like what happens to any of us. You get uh, outclassed for your jobs in terms of your pay rate. They probably got a good deal. Oh, you, you think they? Oh, yeah. Hmm. That's an interesting point, too. And, you you know, you talk about the economy and a $300 million budget where they're having to make cuts because they were only, what, 70% capacity with their ticket exactly. sales last year. So uh, there could have been some of that for some of the European conductors, and that may have been a reason that there wasn't uh, an exhaustive search for some of them because the Met maybe knows that, hey, this we're going to be making a change in this position and what it encapsulates, at least financially speaking. Mm-hmm. So that could be something. Here's but I don't know that... It, do you really think that European composers are going to throw their... Or, excuse me, conductors are going to uh, throw their nose up in the air at conducting at the Met? Like in, for any kind of engagement? Like one show, two shows a season or whatever? No. As if it's not good enough for them? No, of course. I think they would do it one-off. But you've got to look at a bigger picture here of like those conductors. Uh, and, you know, they're mostly men. I think they're all men on the list that I read earlier. Um, you know, maybe they've got families. They've got to think about where they want to live their lives. I, I think it's a big deal. To, like what would be attractive about coming to live in the U.S., especially in like the tenuous political climate mm. that we're in now versus like you could just live comfortably in like Madrid or Munich or Berlin or London and like get on with your European life. I just don't see the attraction. Can you imagine Valerie Gergiev being like, by Russia, I'm moving to New York. Yeah, exactly. It wouldn't happen. Here's what else I don't understand is that Yannick, I'm not going to uh, work his last name again. <laughs> Can you believe the one show that Giovanna is not here for? We have to talk French the whole time. <laughs> exactly. She butchers everybody else's name. And now we have a French Oliver's going to be so mad. Exactly. Uh, so he uh, is the head conductor of the orchestra in Montreal. Uh, he's going to keep that job until the 2020 season. Um, he is... He just extended with Philadelphia as well. That was announced literally 20 minutes after the Met announced it. It's a pretty good day for him. Uh, yeah, but like, buddy, can't you let someone else have a chance? Do you why? know what I mean? Well, because there's lots of other great conductors out there. I don't know so why he if, should be like the one guy. To if be you're doing good it enough all. to hold those positions, you are. You're good enough to hold those positions. He's doing it at a disservice if to the James Met. James can score 35 points a game. It doesn't mean Anderson Verjao, when he used to play for him, needs to score five more just because he could also do it. No, but these if guys are playing for who, one team, Toby. In, in your sports metaphor. Well, but so music is one thing. And if his interpretations are good enough and his leadership is good enough to be in charge of the Philadelphia uh, Orchestra and the Met, and those people think that that artistic integrity is there for everything that he's doing, why is there a problem? But do I don't think it, I don't think it is. I, I think that like his work is going to suffer because he's going to be too thinly spread. Math. Well, let's be honest. What do you want from your art? What do you want from your entertainment? Do you want the 76 Lakers or do you want LeBron James? <laughs> That's what you want. I mean, think about it with James Levine. James Levine not only was at um, was at the Met, but he was also what what symphony in Boston did he conduct forever? 
Was the, it the Boston the Symphony? The Boston Symphony, right. yeah. Tanglewood, like all of this yeah. stuff where he got enough work to be this monolithic pillar of amazing musical quality. That's what I want. That's what mm-hmm. I want to be, and that's what I want to emulate. I, and I think, too, I guess part of the reason I disagree, sorry, I'm dropping things here and throwing them on your floor, um, is that like as a singer, I think if I were to get gig after gig after gig, I think that there's a reason. And the reason is because each person who I'm auditioning for thinks that they see in me something that they can make their show better with. And if that's what they believe, then they're going to hire that person regardless of how many other things that they're doing. If they're capable, the people making these decisions aren't t- doing them uh, without a lot of thought and, and taking care of what's most important, and that's going to be their opera house or their orchestra. And so these people wouldn't allow it to happen if they really thought that the artistic integrity was going to suffer. That's why I believe... There are smart people uh, making these decisions. And the Met especially, you know, they're going to have to make these budget cuts. And they're looking for a way to become sustainable and exciting for a new generation, frankly, that's starting to attend opera. And so I think it'll be interesting, George, to monitor to see if it suffers. Um, but I think, Mathen, like you said, I hope it it. It doesn't. Let me ask you guys this. What are you looking for in conductors? You are both singers. When you go into a collaboration, Mathen. Oh, it's very funny because if I'm going with what we were just talking about, what I really want is to be working with a genius. I want to be, I want to know that I have a, oh, captain, my captain moment, someone at the helm (laughs) who is going to help elevate my art to something else. But that's in the head. When you get on the stage, when you get in the room, what you're really looking for is partnership and collaboration. Mm -hmm. And those two things are sometimes in cognitive dissonance, which creates a little problem. Because in one way, I want to be hanging out with Frank Sinatra at the helm. But another way, I want to be with my friends making art. Mathen, have you worked with conductors that were really problematic? And if so, what, what was the barrier there? Uh, Never problematic, which I have been very fortunate. We hear lots of stories of the tyrannical conductor. And I mean, especially through the 1940s and 50s, that was all you heard about with Carrion and Toscanini and all of those kinds of guys. Um, Generally, what I look for in a great conductor and what I have been fortunate to experience is people who put the art above the ego. It's not always been that way, but I think with social media, with having so many options, people are finding that to really be a successful conductor, you have to be a successful collaborator. Mm -hmm. Toby, what's your experience been with conductors, good or bad? You know, I've had a lot of great experiences. I can't really think of a bad experience. I can think of some really interesting ones, and a lot of it had to do with situations and, and theaters more than the conductor themselves. Um... I think I've, I, I always kind of think of conductors in, in two realms, and that's a little bit of an oversimplification, but they're the conductors who are going to just conduct the music. And so they're kind of just A to Z, we're going to get through this, and we're going to let the music do the speaking. We don't have to create the art because it's on the page. And then there are those um, who are like the Tuscan, Tuscaninis, where they have the score memorized. They don't need to, they're not doing it just to reproduce the music. They're doing it to explode in that moment with a just awesome passion for making the art. And I think of Victor Dorenzi at Sarasota Opera, where I just was, 
And there are people who think he's a tyrant. There are people who refuse to work with him. And I understand that. And that's because he knows so much about the music and he demands that the singer also know as much about the music. Otherwise, why are you doing it? You can't walk onto my stage if you don't know the exact words. If you don't know your, your markings in the score, there aren't accidental markings. You know, these things happen for a reason. And so those kind of conductors, I think, can be really enlightening to work with. And I enjoy that. It's a challenge and it's not always um a safe place i feel like when you're working with a conductor like that but man it pushes you as a singer and it's fantastic the end result is fantastic i think what we're talking about here is star wars are you <laughs> want, do you want to be the light side or do you want to be the dark side mm-hmm. uh, there are uh, there are benefits to both yes I've had some of each, certainly. I remember when I was in grad school, I was the assistant to the director on a show at the Met. And um, the conductor was extremely problematic. Mm-hmm. He was obs- he was type A of your two columns, Toby. He was uh, totally obsessed with the music. And he just took hours and hours of staging time to just look at every single note in the score. It was a... a um, Bellini opera and so it's bel canto so there's a there's a lot of notes and there's a lot of technique involved but like he just couldn't let go of that and realize that what we were really trying to do there was tell this story um same uh time though i've also worked with with conductors that i've gotten along with really well and i think as a director you really really want that to happen you know the last thing you want as the director and conductor when you're working in front of the singers is to have like mom and dad fighting. Nobody wants to be around that and nobody wants to see that. And so there is that sort of give and take. And I think as a director, I I know ultimately like singers have got to sound great and it's for us to advocate for them and it's for the conductor to advocate for them. But you just hope that the conductors have a sense of ingenuity and a sense of why telling the story is important and and how we gonna make that work. That's interesting. have you ever worked with a conductor that changed your staging? Uh, I have, but usually it was by mutual consent. Okay. You know, like I would come up with an idea and they were like, uh, if she does that, it's going to be difficult for her to hit the notes. But what if she did this instead? And it's great when the conductors come up with the staging in a way. Right. I mean, look, as directors, all we want is the best possible solution. And it doesn't really matter where it comes from. We just need it fast because we have no time. So I'm always totally down when the conductors end up restaging, you know, the number, the aria, whatever it is. It's super As long helpful. as it's in, in the spirit of... The like spirit of the me. thing, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly right. The spirit of the thing. That's going to be, <laughs> that's my new rally cry for everything. <laughs> Get that tattooed on a turtle on your chest. <laughs> well, with the announcement of uh, Yannick Nezé-Séguin as the Met's new music director, our co-host and resident operaphile Oliver Camacho, thought it might be fun to listen to some recordings led by famous conductors who have performed at the Met. It's our pop quiz, and it's coming up next. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Giovanna Jacques. Pop quiz. Oh, boy. All right. Welcome back to Opera Box Score on this beautiful Monday. Uh, Tobias Wright in studio. I am. Today I am. Last week I was not. Co-host, guest host, Mathen Black. I feel so honored to be here. For those who don't know Mathen, I just, you should know, he's a very handsome man. 
Oh, I will take that and hold it close to my heart. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> Time for the pop quiz. Um, so now Oliver's going to uh, sort of, t- uh, he's given me some instruction for you, but we're going to make it a little bit easier for you two boys and for our audience. It's going to be multiple choice. And to make it fair, you're going to hear some singing, which is often the key to identifying the conductor. So you need to be thinking Britain and Pears or Callas and Seraphin, those t- types of combinations. Oh my God, this already sounds <laughs> awful. So there's five rounds, and you each get to guess after we hear the clip, and then I'm going to give you the multiple choice possibilities, all right? You got to defend oh, we get your multiple answer. Choice? Oh, yeah, it beautiful. is multiple choice. Which I think is a first for Oliver. Thank, thank Usually you, he Oliver. hasn't done the multiple choice thing. Oliver, I hate you. So you're going to get one point for guessing the conductor, and you're going to get one point for saying halfway intelligent about why you chose that conductor. <laughs> okay. That's all I'm capable of. And you know what? You still get a point if your guess is wrong about the conductor, but that your rationale is good. And Oliver, who is a smart guy, has got some themes running through the three options oh my God. that you Of have. course he does. I love Oliver right? for this. <laughs> so. Also, for those of you listening who weekly think that these quizzes, like you think it's, why don't these guys know this? I Give us a call and take part in this quiz sometime because it is... So much more difficult when you're sitting here being put on the spot. What's the phone number? 555 Toby justifying his failure. (laughs) All right. Are you guys ready for your first clip? Maybe. I was born ready. Here we go. All right, so again, remember, all the conductors on this entire list for all rounds have uh, all taken from the Met. So all of these recordings are at the Met? That is, I believe that is correct, right. yes. So your options for that first batch are Daniel Berenboim, Sir George Salty, and James Levine. And we're going to start with Toby. Who do you think off that list? Okay, I'm going to go with Levine. Okay, and why? Um, uh, I don't. I, I really don't have a good rationale. I can't even. I don't even know. I'm just guessing at this point. And I will f- fully admit, in my infancy as a singer, I'm just now beginning to learn about conductors and w- how much they impact a recording. So there's my spiel there, but I'm going to say the mine. Math and black. Feel free to call in at five five five. Toby justifying his failures. <laughs> Guys, I'm so. <laughs> I, I although even, even though I'm poking fun at Toby, I will also say James Levine. Uh, but I think it's James Levine because the um, it's deliciously Mozart. 
And Oliver's being sneaky by giving his wretch to Teve. But the in, in James Levine's early career at the Met, he really made his mark with beautifully interpreted Mozart wretch to Teve. Oh my gosh, when do I get fired from the show and we replace me with math? <laughs> Take a listen to what Oliver had to say. That was Don Upshaw singing the accompagnato recitative from Susanna's aria in The Marriage of Figaro, recorded live from the stage of the Met in 1996. To me, the giveaways are A, Don Upshaw, a singer whose operatic career was made by James Levine. She was one of his favorites. B, Mozart at the Met, uh, one of the most important Mozart conductors at the Met. And James Levine's style for conducting Mozart is very typical of the way Mozart was approached uh, in the 90s and 80s. I would say that he's actually fantastic at Mozart and really understands the classical era style in an academic way and is able to translate that scholarship into an orchestra as large and a house as big as the Met. So there you go. You both get a point for Jimmy Levine. Uh, and Matthew, I'm going to give you an extra point for the Mozart connection. Thank you. Because I thought that was pretty smart. I thought so too. Did you say deliciously Mozart? I did. Cool. Onward to round two. Take a listen to this. So it's only fair to make math and go first, I think, on this one. Here's your list of three conductors for that extract. Leonard Bernstein, Ricardo Muti, and Roberto Abado. Lucia de Lammermoor, wonderfully quick tempo. Um, I know I'm wrong, but I'm going to say Leonard Bernstein because the energy in that was insane. And Leonard Bernstein is known for sweaty magic dancing that happens on the podium, uh, maybe fueled by cocaine, maybe not. Either way, <laughs> I, the energy in that is uh, is electric, and I'm going to say Leonard Bernstein. Tobias, right? Um, I'm going to go with Muti, and actually it's Traviata. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we cool. take a point away from Mathen. <laughs> <laughs> Also, Muthi, and part of the reason, you know, you hear Muthi conduct Italian, and he just does it, it's the truth, you know, the way that he does it, and he doesn't mess around in, in that particular moment. Like you said, there's a lot of energy there, and that's what I always, uh, any you know, time that you hear Muthi do, what he just do, Falstaff with CSO, and I mean, it was just as is, right. come scritto, and it's just perfect, it's wonderful. Dude, just wait till you hear what Oliver has to say. Oh, God, <laughs> it's neither of those. <laughs> That was the 1980 recording of La Traviata, the end of the first act, with Renata Scotto and Alfredo Kraus, conducted by Riccardo Mutti. The very obvious giveaway was the Come Scritto ending of that aria. Um, 
obviously there was no high note and the cadential moment was very strange to our ears but also the fact that Scotto sang all of the written notes uh, often in this last page of this cabaletta uh, there's a couple of measures that are dropped before the famous high E flat so the soprano could take a break uh, this is what Ricardo Muti likes. He likes his Verdi, the way it's written, come scritto. And he, once again, is a conductor that is associated with Verdi. Tobias Wright, two for two on that. You didn't even cheat this time. I didn't cheat this time. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think I can retire from pop quizzes now, though. <laughs> that was beautiful. Thanks, man. And the shame rising to my face is uh, should be a, uh, a boon and a win for you. So you pull into the lead, man. Three to two. Right. Tobias over Mathen. Uh, let's keep this going here and get to the third round. So there's your third clip. We're going to go back to Toby to start off on this one. Do I get my choices? You do. Okay. <laughs> Wait, can I just, can I guess? We only heard the tenor like really briefly, but was that pop? I, I think it know? was, yes. I, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I, I, Oliver says it. Okay. Um, but here's your options. Richard Bonning, Henry Lewis, and James Conlon. Uh, I l- legitimately have no idea. Yeah. Okay, so I'm you're, sorry. You're, I'm going, you're going. You're going zero. For, I'm going zero. On zero this for two one. on that one. Yeah. Okay, Mathen. That is Richard Bonning, Joan Sutherland, Luciano Pavarotti from a 1960s Decca recording oh my of Bellini's Norma. Let's get. <laughs> All right, say no more. Let's get right to the meat. That was awesome. From the Act One finale of Bellini's Norma, we heard Joan Sutherland, a tiny bit of Marilyn Horn, and just a tiny bit of Pavarotti. Those three singers should be the biggest clue to the conductor, who is Richard Bonning, Joan Sutherland's conductor husband. Bel Canto is the repertoire that Bonning is known for and what he does best. I think some of the evidence of his great Bel Canto conducting was just how he placed the chords a little bit before the vocal entrance so that the singer really comes in on the downbeat and the orchestra is already playing Uh, a less percussive chord when the singer's voice enters. And his restraint of the brass and some of that declamatory stuff, the singer sounds much more declamatory when the brass is not playing quite as loud. Uh, Other recordings or versions of this opera finale 
sometimes the brass is so loud that the norma has to sing even louder. And Bonding, if anything, was known uh, for really protecting his singers and showing them in their best light. Yeah, so Mathen, two points for you on that. Zero for me. Yeah, I mean, you because you knew it was Joan Sutherland, you knew it was her Richard husband, Bonding. Richard mm-hmm. Bodding, conducting. Yeah. Did I ever tell you that the first opera I was ever in was with Joan Sutherland? I know. I've heard this. You've Tell heard this story. story before? Tell the story. It was at Michigan Opera Theater in the late 80s, and Norma has two children, and me and my brother were the two kids, and Joan Sutherland sang the role of Norma. And I had absolutely no idea who she was. Of course all, not. Literally, all I remember is two things about it. First of all, on opening night, she gave us, me and my brother, this huge box of chocolates shaped like Aww. a piano. Where like the white keys were white chocolate and the black keys were dark That's chocolate. That's so lovely. And she had the biggest boobs of anyone I've ever seen. <laughs> Giant rack, big oh, head, huge jaw, and amazing. Voice. I'm like a small guy, and I was a really small kid. And when she like wakes up her children and sort of embraces them, I mean, literally, my brother William and I were suffocating. But like, <laughs> George. That is seriously one of the coolest stories I've ever, in this entire opera business, in my brief little life of it, that's one of the coolest stories Isn't I've ever Isn't it funny? Heard. I had no clue who she was. Literally no clue. It was completely it's wasted amazing. on me. You got to yeah. snuggle at the bosom of La Stupenda. Exactly. And look at me now. <laughs> so Mathen pulls ahead with four you, to you three. <laughs> we are going to move quickly on to round four, boys. Is this our final round? There's one more after this. Oh my God, I thought we were done. I know. It's, it's nope. like it goes on forever and it just feels like I'm being constantly hit in the face. You don't have a ton to go on there. There was a lot of just pure orchestral music there. That's kind of a hint, I guess. Uh, Mathen, any idea at all from these three names? Harry Bickett, Patrick Summers, William Christie. I'm going to say it's Harry Bickett because I know Oliver loves Harry Bickett. Um, Oliver loves a lot of people. It's also early music. And early music being very interesting because there's... It's a text in English. There is lute continuo, which is very strange for me. So I'm not sure what this is, but we know that there's a lot of sensitivity to the the continuo and to the orchestral writing with those beautiful dissonance resolutions. But I'm I'm, I'm just guessing here. Tobias. I'm going to echo that, but I'll just take somebody. I'll go with Summers there. And it was interesting. You know, it started, I, goodness gracious, 
I'm interested to know what that was that they were singing. Yeah, me too. It was nothing that I've heard before. Um, we're going to let Oliver reveal Tell me, Oliver. All. Educate me. That was Irene's aria from Handel's Theodora, sung by Lorraine Hunt Lieberson, at that time known as Lorraine Hunt, from the now legendary production from Glyndebourne by Peter Sellers, which also starred David Daniels and Don Upshaw. Uh, the conductor, William Christie. There hasn't been a lot of handle at the Met, uh, but now we have some, and William Christie is part of that. Um, we also have other conductors doing handle at the Met these days, like Harry Bickett. Uh, so if you said Harry Bickett, I might have accepted that answer, since Harry Bickett also was a big fan of Lorraine Hunt Lieberson before she passed away 10 years ago. Still grieving that loss, uh, one of the, my favorite singers, and I know William Christie loved her because uh, she's on a lot of his recordings with Les Arts Florissant. It would take a long time for me to explain why you should be able to detect an early music specialist in that particular recording, uh, but the more obvious things that one hears is the prominence of the continuo section, uh, the plucked and the low bass instruments. Uh, this is what the Baroque specialists do, is they bring those things out, which are collectively known as the continuo band. And um, Baroque music in general uh, has a lot of continuo in it. And we love the juxtaposition of the solo instrument, in this case, the voice, with the low instruments uh, that pluck and that bow the bass line, known as a continuo that kind of you know dichotomy between the high voice and the low voice is what really makes broke music work oh come on oliver tell us something that we don't know <laughs> he could have gone on longer <laughs> he, he knows would, plenty oliver knows a lot he really does so you tanked toby oh yeah on I that. early music is the furthest from anything that i do or know you know what i mean but oliver good God, sometimes these quizzes make me feel like I have I'm not a musician at all. It's I, I may not be a smart man. <laughs> and I'm I'm torn because Mathen, you did say Harry Bickett. You're also up four points to three. So if I give you a point for that, it almost puts this out of reach for I mean, Tony. I'm going to say that Oliver said that he would give me a point, so I think you should honor his okay, wishes. Okay, we're going to give you half a point. Interesting. For that. I would have given you the I will point. say that production of uh, Theodora, which is directed by Peter Sellers um, from Glyndebourne, is absolutely fantastic. It is quite old now. It's you know it's from the 80s, obviously, when Lorraine Hunt was alive, uh, but it's so beautifully done. It's totally modernized. Um, there's a lot of like medical gear and medical equipment mm. and people being in Injected with um, lethal cool. injections. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's really fantastic. So this is close. It, it is going to come down to this final round. Let's let's get it on right now.
right. So, uh, Mathen, we're going to let you start on this last one here. Here's the list. Zubin Mesa, Herbert von Karajan, and Lauren Mazel. I have no idea what Only one is. of those guys is alive now, right? By the way, Zubin Mehta. Yeah. Who, when I was at the Bayerischer Staatsoper, I saw him <laughs> conduct a ballo in mascara. Everybody but that's another story. <laughs> Mesh Mazel passed away, what, last year? Yeah, uh, yeah. Couple, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what this is. It's um, hard to tell uh, so, what the piece uh, is. It's, it's, even, it's difficult. It was difficult for me to hear the, the language, which creates another Italian. bit of a problem, too. So I'm, I'm going to make a few guesses here, and please pardon my ignorance, understanding that the motto of my podcast is that there's a lot of information in the world, and you don't have to keep it all in uh, your brain. Thank you for saying that. You're very welcome. <laughs> um, so I, I think, based on the quality of the tenor, that that is Placido Domingo. If I think it's Domingo, then I'm thinking Puccini, and I'm thinking Turandot. And if I'm thinking those things, and I'm thinking it's an early early quality recording and the way his voice is functioning, I'm going to say Carrion. Well, man, you should almost get a point just for connecting the dots on that. That was pretty great. Tobias Wright. Um, I actually thought that was Domingo, too. Mm-hmm. Um. And it sounded, it still sounded pretty bright, the quality. So, and then you, there's that partnership with he and Meita, you know, the three tenors. So I'll go with, with Maestro Meita. Oliver will reveal all. This admittedly was the hardest excerpt, but for those of you who are big fans of the conductor, you would recognize the singers that he chose. And this is one of the trademarks of this particular conductor, Herbert von Karajan who tends to put singers uh, in roles that are just one fach bigger than they were meant to be in. Katia Ricciarelli is more of a liu, but there she is singing Turandot. And uh, Karian was a big fan of Domingo, and we heard a little bit of Domingo singing Kalaf there. If anything, Karian was known for being a control freak and for his gigantic ego, but he was able to elicit really beautiful sounds, rich sounds and precision from the orchestras that he conducted. So there you go. Mathen, you got the show, you got the conductor, you got this one in the bag, buddy. We're going to say a point and a half. So that's well, Welcome to Opera Box Tour, where you are undefeated. Yeah. <laughs> from from wrongly Lucia de Lammermoor to Turandot. <laughs> it was a huge rise. <laughs> Turn around. Yeah, yeah. Toby, you did say Domingo, of course. Yeah. I, I have to admit, I, I don't know how you guys can just listen to someone sing and know who it is. I don't know how Oliver can just listen to someone and know who's conducting. Could I do that with directing? Could I, like, see production photos of a director and know who it is? Oh, I'm sure you could. Well, maybe. I don't know. I, I guess I flatter myself by saying You know, that. I think it's interesting, especially within my own fuck while I'm a tenor. Uh, and when you listen to enough, I mean, it becomes so easy to distinguish, you know, the tenors that you love and because you fall in love with them for specific reasons. And just like you would fall in love with directors, you see their shows and visually, you know exactly why you like it. So it's, it becomes easier with time. It's like a, it's, you know, there's a reason we say there are colors of voices. It's just like the same thing. A painter, you have a relationship with colors. So it's not just blue, it's cerulean, it's aquamarine, it's turquoise. Eventually, you, you form a relationship with these sounds. Mm-hmm. Thanks to Oliver Camacho for Thank you, Oliver. Together. I hate you, Oliver. And our guest, Math and Black, the winner this week. Right now, it's time for the two-minute drill. This just in. 
the two-minute drill. Time for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from the past week in two minutes tops. New York City Opera has announced it would be collaborating with director Harold Prince, who plans to stage Leonard Bernstein's Candide next season. It's all about city opera. I want the people's opera back in New York, said Mr. Prince, who's 88. The new Candide will be at the Rose Theater at Jazz at Lincoln Center, based on productions that Mr. Prince mounted at city opera earlier. The company's other operas will include a double bill that pairs Rachmaninoff's rarely seen Aleko with Leon Cavallo's Pagliacci, Respighi's La Campana Somersa, and Peter Etvos's Angels in America, which is based on the Tony Kushner play. The company also plans to offer a pair of chamber operas next season, Fallujah, a 90-minute one-act by Tobin Stokes, and an opera that is a Spanish Baroque rarity, Los Elementos, by Antonio Di Literes. The artistic director of Skylight Music Theater in Milwaukee, Viswa Subaraman, announced that he will be leaving in July in order to focus on his conducting career and commit to new opera works. Phyllis Curtin has died. She was an American classical soprano who hasn't had an active career in operas and concerts from the early 1950s through the 1980s. Curtin was known for her creation of new roles such as the title role in the Carlisle Floyd opera Susanna. Many years ago, Volchaut Meyer, who sang the role of Kundry in Wagner's Parsifal from the 1980s until this year, fell out with the elderly Wolfgang Wagner and swore never to return to the Bayreuth Festival, where Wagner's works are performed every summer. But people change, and Meyer has agreed to come back as Ortrud in 2018, when she'll be 62. Keenan Kyles, who's 28, is a janitor at Chicago's ABC TV affiliate, and he's traveling to Edinburgh in July for a rare opportunity to take on a lead role in stage production of Puccini's La Boheme. He is set to perform for nine days at the Edinburgh International Festival. I've always been interested in performing in the UK, Kyles told ABC News. I went online, I searched opera editions in the UK, and one in particular stood out to me. It required that I send in a video of me performing two contrasting arias, end quote. <laughs> if only it was always that easy, Kanan. That's the two-minute drill. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. Now I hear you say an opera ain't your thing, but get this. We tackle everything about opera and body slam it into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of in-depth analysis, outrageous opinions, and good, clean fun. You might even learn something. Opera class, sports radio crass. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. So, Tobias Wright, what's uh, interesting to you about the two-minute drill? Uh, I'll be really brief. I think it's great what's happening with New York City Opera. I'm happy that it's coming back, and it's totally different than what it has been before, but I think we're all rooting for m more opera companies to be adventurous and to reopen their doors, so I think that's fantastic. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. And then uh, here home in Ch Chicago, we have Keenan Kyle's The Janitor, who's going to be go sing, uh, singing La Boheme, and I think that's a great story. I also think like cool that's what we're all trying to do <laughs> so it's yeah like i work three part-time jobs i work 70 hours a week i wish somebody would make a video about me and i could go sing lava Lem in the uk <laughs> I, I, but good for him that's awesome well it's very funny how i saw this thing running around on facebook over the last week that this was happening and i, I didn't click it because you know clickbait and social media but um it would be very interesting to hear the backstory here the media loves this overnight success story mm -hmm. it makes it sound like he was working as a janitor and decided oh i'm gonna go try yeah. opera i bet there's about 14 years of training behind oh that. yeah and it, you know the interview you should watch it 
cool guy. Is he? I mean, it's really something cool. You're seeing something happen. It's a great thing happen to a great, what, seemingly a great guy. That sounds. And real that's cool. like when you see your friends get gigs, and they're like, "I'm happy to announce on Facebook." You know, there are certain <laughs> hashtag thrilled to announce. <laughs> hashtag so blessed. <laughs> but you know, there are certain people where you see it and you roll your eyes, and then there are certain people where you see it and you're like, "Hell yeah, you deserve that. You've yep. been working your tail off." And I hope that's the case here with this guy. I certainly hope so. By the way, Facebook is not the place for any sort of like negativity, though. Like, literally everything on Facebook is always happy, go lucky, yep. and positive. Because if it's negative, everyone's like, "God, that guy's like such a pain." You like, what, what I mean? if I <laughs> thrilled to announce I did not get any gigs for this summer? Hashtag waitlist. Thrilled to announce <laughs> hashtag hells and hood all summer. Exactly. <laughs> then you get like sympathy votes. <laughs> Math and Black, what's interesting to you about the two minute drill? Oh, well, that's cool with New York City Opera and Harold Prince. Is that the same Harold Prince who worked with Stephen Sondheim to stage most of his work? Same guy. See, I think that's so cool because there's a lot of innovation happening there. And it's nice to see City Opera in its rebirth bringing some music theater traditions over. We talk a lot in the opera world here in Chicago about how. Um, Music theater has sort of cornered the market on happy comedy and opera is just getting even more tragic and darker. It's I love Candide. It's going to be fun to see what Harold Prince can do there. It's a great choice of piece. I couldn't disagree with you more. There's nothing less innovative than taking Harold Prince, who is like a standard very good Broadway director and having him remount a show that he's already done at City <laughs> Opera. When is this company going to get a clue about how it's supposed to progress and move forward? The programming, as I say, Candide, fantastic. Lesser known Rachmaninoff, whatever, that's fine. Pagliacci, great. New works, chamber operas. But I just don't get why they would bring Harold Prince back. That guy has done everything on Broadway. Again, fantastic director. But look, this company, it needs new blood. It needs new people in it. So I, I just don't get it. See, I don't know about that. I like this idea that um, I, think New, I think New York City Opera is being exactly as sort of expansive and innovative with its traditions as it needs to be. Because if New York City Opera is going to succeed, I, I, they have a, a storied past of taking young singers and giving them opportunities. I don't think City Opera's job is to be the innovative opera house. I think it needs to be the incubator for the next generation of singers in New York City. Interesting. So you're saying that it's really kind of redefined its mission because in its early stages, right, Wasn't that was really what it did is they yeah. programmed against the Met, the productions were very much against the net and Matt. And so you know you're saying Mathen, it really needs to shift yet again into this third job description, I guess I'd say, about this sort of incubator. Maybe that's what the chamber operas are supposed to do. Fallujah and uh, Los Elementos. I think so. I think that's what was happening. And I, I do think that that is a nice gateway for opera especially really great opera singers to be able to continue to have um, you know the kind of impact we want them to have can I just add in here it's been interesting to hear you both talk about it and use the word innovative and you said innovative math and, and then George because he spent so much time in Europe and the UK said innovative <laughs> <laughs> so you I'm just going to make fun home, of George now <laughs> you can drink for that too <laughs> I, uh, I got to hand it to Volchard Meyer who is going back to um, the Bayreuth Festival after all these years first of all it's like my life dream to go to the Bayreuth Festival. It's impossible to get tickets. You have to be in this lottery for literally like 5, 10, 15 years. There's also a way to like buy a very few tickets of them online, but like you don't know, I think, what show you're going to see or what date it's going to be. But man, when I 
get some money together. I cannot wait to go to Bayreuth. Um, I did see her sing in this uh, Parsifal when I was in Germany earlier this year, and she was fantastic. Great. Now she's coming back to sing Ortrud in Lohengrin, which is also a phenomenal Wagner opera. And she's going to be 62. Yeah. That's awesome. 62. And she is a hot mama. Can I a just say mama. that as well? She is like yeah. really in really good shape. Well, the moral of this story is grudges hurt no one but yourself, right? That's math and dropping knowledge on me here. <laughs> grudges hurt no one but yourself. Remember that, listeners. <laughs> Time to wrap this show up right after this. Good call, bad call. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result, 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. All right. Thanks for joining us on the show this week. We're going to wrap it up with Good Call, Bad Call. And I think we should let the guests go first, don't you, Toby? Absolutely. Nothing black. You know, I'm very excited about almost everything that's happening in in the musical world. I'm really excited about the new appointment for the Met musical director. But, you know, in the spirit of who I am and the job of my podcast, my good call has to be all of those singers, young singers working at summer programs right now, and all of those singers who aren't working at summer programs, who are slogging away at their jobs, still practicing, keeping it going. Tobias right. Amen to what you just said there, Nathan. Because um, you know there are people at those young artists program right now and their lives are literally changing. They're mm-hmm. making that decision that, you know what, this is what I'm on fire for and this is what I want to pursue. Happened to me in the summer program, a pay to sing. Uh, and here I am several years later still pursuing it while grinding away. So that's a great call. I have a bad call and it is about Phyllis uh, Curtin and, and her death. I mean, here's a titan of the American music scene, of the Ameri- American operatic scene when you talk about premiering Susanna at Carlisle Floyd in 1955 at Florida State. Um, Why I think it's a bad call, it's a sad call more than anything because you look at the second half of her life and her career and she parlayed that into becoming a wonderful educator. And I'm so thankful for people in my life that are educators and what they, it wasn't just the teaching, it was the humanity with which they approached their teaching. Um, And she certainly did that. And so I think it's a sad loss for so many people whose lives she affected. Wow. Go ahead. All of our friends at Boston University and Tanglewood lost an amazing asset (laughs) and a wonderful person. Our hearts go out to all of you. I got a good call as well. Wow, we're all very positive this week, apparently. I'm directing a production of Albert Herring by Benjamin Britten right now at Chicago Summer Opera. And man, can I tell you just how much I love this show. It is so funny, you know, coming from England the way that I do. My mother's English. I just, I know these people so Drink. well. And I just am thrilled to be working on this production. I can't Have wait a nice to see peach. it. What? Have a nice peach, y'all. Well, that's it for our podcast. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. For WNUR, our programming director is Bill Scholney, and the general manager is Maddie Higgins. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. You can follow us online, on Twitter, and on Facebook by searching for Opera Box Score. 
Be sure to like our Facebook page, and if you know people who would enjoy our show, help us spread the word by sharing our posts. Our next show is Monday, June 13. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And hey, don't just listen to the podcast. Be a grown-up and leave a comment or a review. Oliver Camacho is the creative consultant for our show. For Tobias Wright and our guest, Math and Black, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera, even if it's a holiday weekend. Mathen, what's in the opera crystal ball this week? Oh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs>